Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello podcasters, it's Matt here and I wanted to invite you on a very special journey with me in the footsteps of the Anzacs. If you've always wanted to visit the Western Front, now is the time to do it. I am leading an exclusive tour in June this year, so it's only a few months away and we're going to walk the battlefields of the Western Front through France and Belgium in the footsteps of the Australian soldiers. And the best news is I'm joined by a very special guest. It's Ray Martin the famous, iconic Australian journalist and TV presenter, is going to come with us and he's going to share his experiences of reporting on history and studying history because Ray actually studied to be a history teacher before he became a journalist. In addition, he's a wonderful photographer, so he's going to share with us his techniques and his tricks and tips for getting the most out of your holiday photos. It's going to be a wonderful journey. It's about 10 days, departs from Paris in early June. It's going to be a really wonderful trip. So please come with us, walk in the footsteps of the Anzacs on the Western Front. It's the only tour I'm leading this year to the Western Front. So if you want to come and walk with the Anzacs, I'd love to see you over there. For more information, visit battlefields.com.au. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and you join us this week at the anniversary of a pretty significant event of the 20th century, the formation of the Nazi Party and obviously this has repercussions for history throughout the 20th century, even to today and beyond. And, and I really wanted to, to, to dig into this fascinating topic and to help me do that, I'm here at Sydney University with Dr. Marco Duranti, who is going to talk to us all about the formation of the Nazi Party. Marco, thank you for joining us on the program. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Paint a picture for us of Germany and Europe at the end of the First World War, because we're talking 1920. We're talking a time when the First World War had just ended, the formation of the Nazi Party directly directly linked to what had gone on in the First World War. Just paint us a picture. What was life like in Europe and particularly Germany at this time at the end of the First World War? Well, the First World War is often described as a trauma in two senses. One, an individual trauma, a psychological trauma uh, for the men who fought in the war for their families at home and their friends and their communities, uh, one that left both physical scars and emotional scars on an entire generation uh, with, with profound personal consequences, um, but also profound political ones. And it was also a collective trauma, a trauma for 
the different nations that were involved in the war, um, of course, the, the communities that were impacted directly in the battles, but also, um, in general, uh, a, a real break with a certain set of certainties that had characterized the 19th century, a certain assumption among Europeans, especially liberals, uh, that that Europe was at the apex of the civilized world and that the kind of material progress, uh, the progress in the arts and the sciences, that this was going to continue forever. And, and we can't really overstate that, can we, that there was a feeling that Europe was enlightened and had, this, had had centuries of growth and, you know, there was a dawn of a new age and that the First World War came along and absolutely destroyed people's perceptions of their their own place in Europe, didn't it? Yes. Well, in fact, there are, there are a number of schools of thought um, uh, on this topic of how to view the, the First World War. Is it, in fact, a dramatic break with the past? Uh, this is the theory associated with the phrase la belle époque, the beautiful times. And, you know, we often, this is the, the image we associate this is, you know, young men and women uh, walking with parasols along the Thames, basking, you know, in the in in the early summer of 1914 before catastrophe arrived, as if you know you, the, the war was completely unexpected uh, and and completely disrupted this kind of moment of prosperity and calm and cultural and scientific ferment and economic progress. That's one vision, uh, and also one that was you know in vogue after the First World War among some. And th- there is another historical school of thought that says, no, in fact, uh, the First World War, though people did not foresee the scale and the duration and length of the war, uh, was it actually a, 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 an outcome of a lot of different uh, forces in play before the war. And in fact, there was a great deal of instability and anxiety and, and crisis um, under the surface. So, Which of those um, theories do you subscribe to? <laughs> Um, I, I, I think it depends on who you're, you're looking at, as always. Um, I, I tend to subscribe to the theory that once a crisis emerges, especially something of that magnitude, it, it makes us understand that um, any time or any phenomenon that we look at, that the elements that we took for granted maybe, maybe weren't so secure after all. I mean, you can think of today in Europe, you know, if, if, if we had looked back to the 90th anniversary of the formation of the Nazi party and done this podcast 10 years ago, people would have spoken, many people would have spoken about Europe today as completely divorced from, you know, the realities of the interwar period or the First World War, a place of supreme economic progress and, and unity and respect for human rights and democracy and prosperity and so forth. Um, but now with recent events in Europe, all of a sudden we start seeing cracks and we look backwards and go, actually, we should have seen this earlier. Um, so I tend to subscribe to the notion that, in fact, the 19th century uh, and the early 20th century were a time of, of a lot of tumultuous changes, some of them because of industrialization and, tech- and, and technological and scientific change, which caused massive social dislocation. Uh, and gave rise to uh, revolutions, uh, and even after the period of revolution gave rise to powerful mass movements. Socialism gave rise to uh, the beginnings of populist right-wing nationalism. You had empires like the Austro-Hungarian Empire that were racked by 
by uh, chaos and by uh, nationalistic uh, movements and, and fragmentation. You had in Germany um, the rise of democratic movements and socialist movements challenging the establishment, um, the, the Ottoman Empire in pieces, and you had the Dreyfus Affair in France uh, pitting the uh, conservative Catholic uh, forces against the more uh, left-wing Republican uh, forces um, in the UK, also major uh, movements of trade unions and labor. And, and in fact, there was a great deal of concern on the eve of the First World War that if war was declared, there would be a general strike uh, in the countries of Europe. And in fact, that the slogan workers of the world unite would be would be realized. Um, concern over, you know, Irish nationalism in the UK, nationalist forces in other parts. Um, in fact, that did not come to pass at the outset of the First World War. There was actually a rallying of of people across the political and social spectrum in support of the war, not universal, but it was there. Um, but this was a time, it was also a time in the arts where, uh, you know, you see the development of uh, expressionism and uh, music and painting. You can think of the works of, in Vienna, you know, the works of Oskar Kokoschka, um, the works of Gustav Klimt um, with concern with kind of the inner psyche and anxieties, the music of the expressionists um, uh, in Vienna as well, the rise of psychoanalysis there. Um, this is a moment in which there's actually an inward look at the irrational and looking at the irrational forces within us and the irrational forces in society. So beneath a kind of veneer of kind of stability and progress, there is a sense of a concern um, about, about, about European civilization. So given all those factors and the fact that Europe by 1919 had come through this traumatic, as you say, war, what was the situation like in Europe? Was Europe, after the First World War, was it, was it refocused on being better and stronger or was it shaky? Was the, did the war shake its faith in itself and its institutions? What, how, how, what was the general feeling in Europe at the end of that war? I think it was contradictory. On the one hand, there was a narrative that was quickly put forward that this was the war to end all wars. Um, it was a very comforting narrative. Um, as Woodrow Wilson said, it would be a peace without victors. There was, at you know, all these ideas that before the First World War had seemed completely utopian, the idea of a new world organization of states, for example, um, were put on the table and, and to an extent realized. Um, and so, and there were the rise of really genuinely uh, popular mass pacifist movements, some of them made up of former veterans um, and others of, of people from across the political and social spectrum who were dedicated to ensuring that war would never happen again. There were memorials that were set up across Europe in small towns and cities alike. Um, and there was a desire to put the war behind one and, and also to remember its lessons. So that was one Narrative. Um, at the same time, it was undoubtedly a moment of great economic and political destabilization. Right? I mean, the Bolshevik Revolution had occurred uh, right at the end of the First World War. In many ways, it was a mutiny as much as a revolution. It was a direct outcome of the First World War and the catastrophic uh, impact of that war uh, on the Russians, the army, and and and. Uh, and the so it was a mutiny, just like uh, the revolution in Germany at the end of the war was was partly a mutiny. Um, but this these 
the Bolshevik Revolution had a great destabilizing uh, impact as well. And there was fear of a repeat of that um, across Europe. And uh, the, uh, Marx had prophesied that it would begin in the industrialized countries like Germany after all. And there were, there were in fact, in Germany at the end of the war, there were two revolutions. One was a, was a radical socialist one. Uh, and the other revolution was a more centrist, liberal democratic um, one. Uh, and there was also concerns about a resurgence of right-wing nationalism. And you see on both sides um, people who are former uh, soldiers and members of the Navy combining with workers and middle classes, and but a lot of um, people who are very disaffected um, building on the socialist movements and, and movements and democratic movements of the earlier period. So it's a, cr- a moment of great instability um, that lasts certainly from 19... 19- 18, the end of 1918, 1919, uh, through 1922, 23, up to 1923 is a period of real destabilization. Um, And in that moment, for example, in Italy, that's a moment in which uh, Italian fascism emerges and ultimately uh, Mussolini is able to seize power by 19, becomes prime minister in 1922 and seizes power in 1924. And I think fascist Italy is a very useful point of comparison with, with Nazi Italy um, and the fa- Italian fascist and Benito Mussolini were able, in fact, to achieve a kind of successful fascist seizure of power, while the Nazis were not. So that is an interesting point of comparison. Um, and then you have a period of, of relative stabilization, in part because um, of, of kind of, you know an economic upswing. The the, the Americans um, agree to forgive. The debts, both uh, portion of the debts, both for their allies and for German, the Germany and other and others, um, and so there is a period of stabilization in the mid 1920s, and that crashes to an end with with the crash of Wall Street um, in, ni- in the end of 1929. So I think you see these alternating periods of destabilization and stabilization, um, and that's something that historians uh, worked on a lot, you know, several decades ago. Um, uh, looking at that, those kinds of periods of stabilization, destabilization. Let's talk specifically impactful. about Germany. Um, you know, it had lost the war, suffered huge mm. losses in manpower, in economic ruin, then the, uh, you know, the reparations. Mm. Um, just, just sow the seeds for us of the of, of how the Nazis were able to, the Nazi Party was able to form in that environment. Yeah, the Nazi Party was one of a number of right wing groups that forms in the aftermath of the First World War. Um, And many of these groups shared a lot of ideological points of similarity with older right-wing parties and conservative parties, but at the same time cast themselves as anti-establishment against the elites, as revolutionary, in fact, um, as very populist, what was it a popular movement when the Nazi Party formed? Was it? A it was a that very. Was it was a very small movement. It was. It began as the German Workers Party in January 1919, um, and it was only in February 1920 that, at the partly at the instigation of Hitler, who took over eventually the propaganda wing of the party, uh, the name was changed to the National Socialist German Workers Party. We shouldn't attribute perhaps too much significance 
to the name itself, but it does have the words socialist in it as well as national. <laughs> this has caused confusion even to yeah. today. I was in a Twitter, yeah, a Twitter war <laughs> recently where people were saying, no, 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 the Nazis were left-wing because they yeah. were socialists. Yes, it, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's caused endless confusion, yes. the word socialist. Well, in, in fact, historians, especially intellectual historians of fascism, um, talk about left-wing Nazis, which seems very unusual, um, but they talk about left-wing Nazis in the sense that many of the original Nazis, like many of the original members of the Italian fascist party, um, were were anti-capitalist. They were revolutionary. Um, you know, like Hitler, they didn't. They rejected a lot of the conventions of the of the middle classes and bourgeoisie. In fact, resented them. Didn't really feel at home. Um, so they formed as a revolutionary anti-establishment party, but not one of the left, which is the left had generally speaking, whether they were kind of liberal Democrats or socialists, had kind of appropriated that mantle of being the revolutionary party. No, they said, in fact, we're going to recast conservatism or recast the right as as a revolutionary populist movement and to a degree did borrow from some elements of socialism, but not the socialism of Karl Marx and not the kind of mainstream socialism of the socialist parties. This wasn't a socialism that revolved around class conflict. Uh, this was a socialism that was ultimately rooted in, in, in nationalism. So it was, it was ultimately rooted in an idea that and, – and it was rooted actually in I think one of the key tenets of, of Nazi ideology, which was the application of the doctrine of total war to society. So in, other, in, you know, in the First World War, um, there was a lot of talk about uh, war socialism because in, in Germany because the German state – took over a massive portion of, of, of the German economy, just like happened in Britain and France, for that matter, and economic planning and intervention, just like in Britain and France as well. Uh, you know, welfare programs set up to assist workers to make sure they could be healthy enough to either be in industry or fight in the war. Um, so there was a kind of bolstering of the welfare state, bolstering of state intervention in the economy. And so this was the kind of socialism that the Nazis, they envisioned a continuation of this total war doctrine, the complete mobilization of society, you know, at, by, by the state to, to peacetime society. Um, and in that sense, it's kind of the, the forerunner of totalitarianism, right? I mean, I think there's that link between total war. And, so there was an element of socialism there in the sense that they were at least ideologically anti-capitalist. Um, it turns out, though, that Hitler uh, increasingly veers the party to make accommodations with the establishment. Uh, and I think that's one of the later keys of their success. But it, the original party manifesto of the National Socialist Party, if you read it today, many people would see this elements of it as extremely left wing. Now, there's, there's talk of, you know, there's anti-Semitism, there's nationalism and all that. But it, they're not free market conservatives, for example. Uh, but German conservatives you know, under, in, in, in the empire had, you know, before the first world war hadn't been free market either. We forget that Otto von Bismarck is one of the innovators of the welfare state uh, and in many ways to stave off the left and to stave off the socialists. Um, so it, it's a, it's a very complicated time. I think it's, if we put ourselves through the lens of today, I think it, it can be very confusing looking back at the aftermath of the, of the first world war. But I think to put it simply, after the First World War, there was a search for people on the right of the political spectrum who detested socialists, most, ma- most mainstream socialists, detested Bolshevism, also detested the liberal Democrats to come up with a new ideology, a new movement 
that would be look like a fresh, forward-looking popular movement. There would be an alternative both to socialism and to capitalism. So they were scrambling, and that's where you kind of see the birth of these these parties that are combining kind of disaffected um, veterans and, and, and kind of many of whom go into these paramilitary organizations um, with actually people who are, you know, many of them kind of shopkeepers or civil servants and white collar workers um, and people who are really responding to the economic insecurities of the time um, as well. When we look at the formation of the Nazi party in 1920, if you say Nazi today, most people have a fairly rigid idea of what that means in terms of Holocaust, Second World War, etc. How how much did that original party evolve and change in those years between 1920 to what we saw in the Second World War? Was this a was this a straight line where they came out with a plan in 1920 for what they wanted for Germany and they just worked that plan for the next 15 years? Or did the organization evolve and change and move well away from the, the ideals that had been set in 1920? Yeah, well, that is also a point of, of contention, right? <laughs> so um, I, I think people, my students in, my, in the, my first year classes already come from high school history talking about the debate between you know, the intentionalists and the functionalists. And a lot of this revolves around, was there a worked out blueprint for the Holocaust from day one, you know? The going you can going back to Hitler's Mein Kampf, um, or was was the Holocaust ultimately a result of kind of uh, kind of patchwork improvised solutions um, to what they called the you know the Jewish problem, the Jewish question? Um, I I generally lean on the side of thinking that the Nazi movement was highly fragmented. There was continual infighting, in fact, which eventually resulted not just in the expulsion of many of the original kind of revolutionary Nazi intellectuals and leaders, but also resulted in the murder and assassination of them (laughs) um, in 1934 uh, to consolidate Hitler's hold on the party. Um, So there was real fragmentation there and there was a lot of debate. And this is not just true of, of the Nazi party. It's also true in in the Italian fascist case, about the degree to which to accommodate the establishment. Uh, And ultimately, what you get is a party that is rhetorically revolutionary, anti-capitalist, anti-establishment, and and, and kind of the alternative to communism, basically. Because if if you were in Germany in that time, if you were truly, you know, revolutionary and anti-establishment, by the mid-1920s, or at least by the late 1930s or early 19 early 1930s, your choice is between the communists and the Nazis, right? But there is this anti-establishment rhetoric, but actually ends up being increasing accommodation. So you can see um, at Hitler's insistence, the Nazi Party platform is amended so that the rights of property owners are secured, for example. And then of course, Hitler goes on to court um, the kind of traditional conservative elites, the the, the industrialists, uh, the conservatives in the bureaucracy um, and the judiciary, uh, people in the military who had already been patrons of Hitler and these movements from the outset, um, and kind of reassuring them uh, that the Nazis, in fact, weren't a threat. So their ideology evolves. There's you know warring factions within the Nazi party. When the Nazis uh, ultimately you know do seize power, 1933 and 1934. Um, many of the original members of the Nazi party are actually in, in towns uh, and cities across Germany. The people who had been maybe the, the school teachers or kind of 
self-styling themselves as kind of the local Nazi intellectuals ideologues are actually shunted aside and feel quite betrayed by Hitler. And in fact, what the Nazis do is, is, is really look to the kind of local establishment, often a local kind of corrupt establishment that they, that they used to secure and consolidate their power. People who wouldn't have dreamed of joining the Nazi party until shortly, shortly before and didn't actually buy into a lot of the ideas. So um, it's an evolving party and Hitler is extremely opportunistic, um, as is Goebbels, uh, and extremely pragmatic. You look at the, even look at the, the Nazi, um, election posters of the early 1930s and, and, you know, aesthetics is so important, uh, to the Nazi party and propaganda. That's one of the, you know, there's a whole chapter in Hitler's Mein Kampf on, on war propaganda and how effective the allies war propaganda had been. And of course, you know, the Jews being behind all that and how the Germans and the German race had to come up with their own effective propaganda. That was very key for him. But the, the anti-Semitism is often downplayed. And even in, in depictions of Jews who are identified as variously as capitalists or Bolshevik or Democrats, um, you know, the, the, there's one actually with, with, a, with a figure of a, of a kind of corpulent Jew who's pulling the strings of politics in Germany. But the Jewish star is, is almost microscopic on that poster. You'd have to look very carefully to identify the person as a Jew. Um, and so it's a mishmash. And I think, I mean, if, if you think about the relevance of this history to today, I think we make a mistake when we think that somehow there was a really coherent fascist ideology in, in worked out ideology in the interwar period. And then we look at figures and movements from today where are right wing populist movements. And we try to measure them up to these various characteristics of fascist ideology was when in fact, the ideology of these fascists was contested. It was often evolved. Many of the leaders didn't actually believe in a lot of or, or care much for, for a lot of the points contained in, the, in these party platforms. Uh, and they had a few core beliefs and impulses. And Hitler, that was, you know, a virulent militant nationalism um, and, and anti-Semitism and a vision of, of a complete kind of regeneration of, of the German nation. Um, that was at the core of his beliefs. And it was also a, a deeply kind of a, a, de- a deeply psychologically um, motivated movement. And a lot of the Nazi leaders were people who had, you know, um, real deep kind of insecurities and phobias and, and so forth. Um, so yes, I think, I think it's a, it's a mistake to think that there was, there's kind of a stable fixed essence to, Nazism. I mean, there's, there are even some historians who argue that Hitler wasn't a Nazi because he didn't actually buy into most of the Nazi ideology of the original Nazis. I've been reading um, recently about the importance of an individual in these great movements. And I think, I think amongst the general public, there's a feeling that there's an inevitability about a lot of these moments in history, that mm. the Nazis were always going to rise up. It was just the nature of the, it was the way the wind was blowing in Germany that, you know, you look at any time in period where any time period in history where something major occurred and there's this feeling of inevitability, it was always going to happen. But I've been reading lately that many historians put forward the idea that you do need the charismatic leader. You do need someone to focus the energy and the efforts and the movement Given that, I mean, regardless of your opinion about that, how important was Adolf Hitler in this rise of the Nazi party? Was this a party that just sort of grew up around him, he took the opportunity to be leader, or was he driving 
the direction of this party and its its eventual growth in power? No, I, I think he was absolutely key. And in history, as your listeners know, um, you know, there's always a tension between putting importance on the individual, on certain individuals and, and, and their role in history, their choices, their agency, and looking at kind of broader social forces and structures. So you always have to do both. But undoubtedly, yes, Hitler was key. And the ideology of the Nazi party eventually became Hitler himself, you know, the, the, the principle of the leader of the Fuhrer, you know, you know, that, that was supreme over any other consideration. Everything, you know, people, any people of, who were either in the Nazi party uh, machine or who were in the German state uh, under Hitler would constantly argue opposing points on the basis that that's what Hitler would want. They could argue completely opposing stances, <laughs> completely opposing policies. Um, so it was ultimately the cult of personality that reigned supreme, and Hitler himself made a lot of strategic choices. Also, Joseph Goebbels being a key ally in his battles with other Nazis, and also Ernst Röhm, who was there from the outset, even you know, with, the, with the formation of the German Workers' Party, and then the formation of the Stromabteilung, the stormtroopers, and a really key leader who was ultimately sidelined, you know, assassinated um, by Hitler. So there were really key individuals who made key moves um, Along along the way, um, so I do think he was pivotal. But I, in part, um, I mean, it's it's interesting because if you talk about inevitability, because most observers on the scene in the 1920s uh, considered Hitler to be a joke. In fact, even in after in, in you know in the 1930 um, election when the Nazis party shock everybody and take 18 percent of the uh, of the vote. Um, he's still dismissed as basically a clown, a kind of babbling hysterical clown. And people who saw him in the beer halls and, the, and so forth in the, after the First World War in the 20s came around, came away thinking he was a lunatic, a lot of them. And that's how, you know, I mean, famously, Benito Mussolini, when he first met uh, Hitler, came back and described him as a babbling monkey to his associates <laughs> and didn't take him seriously at all. Um, there were actually, you know, parties, dinner parties in Weimar, you know, among the kind of hipsters of the day where they would distribute Hitler mustaches as, to, to parody Hitler. They did not, not take him seriously. So, but he did emerge as an absolutely formidable force. And in many ways, he, he understood the importance of theater. And I, I think that, I mean, I always tell my students that the fascists knew how to put on a good show. In fact, the fascists knew how to put on a good party. And that was really key. Um, even if you look at the you know famous films like Triumph of the Will, and I think actually you have to kind of get beyond that image of Nazism, um, which, which is about the um, 1934 Nuremberg party rally. Um, but much of that film, the part that people usually ignore, are all the games and festivities on the eve of the, of the Nuremberg rally, where you see young people that are kind of playing sports and games and all the kind of entertainment that's associated with that. That was so key that, that in fact, joining the Nazi party was also supposed to be a lot of fun too. Um, and that there was the, the power of the Nazis and Hitler, this was Hitler's kind of genius was its ability to project an image of kind of absolute discipline uh, to others. And that, that sense of discipline, you know, where, where a Nazi, a local Nazi party leader would parade you know, the Nazi, the Hitler youth and the, and the stormtroopers and party members through the town with, you know, this the, the amazing choreography, right? Just the choreography. I mean, the, the real power of Triumph of the Will is the choreography. 
um, um, even, probably even more than Lonnie Riefenstahl's cinematography. Uh, the choreography being unbelievable, and then the, Hitler's radio broadcasts, and you cannot underestimate the power of communication technology here in the, in the radio um, for the success of the Nazi party, would be timed perfectly. First you would have the kind of opening act, and then you would have Hitler do a radio broadcast that we broadcast all over Germany to all the different Nazi rallies across the town. So he understood that. He understood the power of images, the power of words, the deployment of these new communication uh, technologies was was essential as much as his own kind of political instincts. And part of those political instincts being the need to appease and accommodate uh, the establishment and the kind of conservative establishment at the same time as projecting himself as a kind of revolutionary anti-establishment figure. It's hard to say this without sounding controversial because the word Nazi just is you know, just means everything dark and awful. But it was brutally effective, wasn't it? Mm. As, a, as a method for seizing power, um, riding a wave of popular opinion, doing what the, hit, what the Nazis needed to do in Germany from mm. their perspective. It was a brutally effective technique, wasn't it, from a, from a political point of view? Yeah, it was brutally effective, and it, they weren't the only the Nazis were not the only ones to attempt this. The, the different political parties all had their own um, kind of youth movements, and, and the Nazis, like the socialists and the communists and uh, liberals and Catholics and others, would have different kinds of groups. I mean, they, if you go through all the small towns of Germany, there would be the sporting club, and there would be the the kind of Nazi sporting club and the socialist sporting club and the Nazi chess club and the Nazi sporting club. But one of the genius of the Nazi uh, political strategy was to kind of slowly co-opt all these different kinds of local groups and civil society that would have been in the hands, say, of, of the middle class people of that town. Again, the kind of small businessmen and shop owners and civil servants and, and professionals and so forth. The Nazi party would come in and eventually brand that association uh, or that pastime with a Nazi label and kind of co-opt those people in that town. Um, so, but there was this competition. Um, it's just that the Nazis were particularly, particularly good at that, at that game. And in a, in a time of crisis and insecurity, and in also in a time in which the Weimar Republic has a serious legitimacy crisis, which is almost from day one, because they have to sign, um, you know, a treaty that, that um, forces them to acknowledge Germany's guilt, immediately undermines the democratic leadership of Germany. You know, that's a big deal. I can imagine that the Nazi party of 1920 didn't foresee a protracted world war that would result in the eventual destruction of Germany as they knew it. How much of what we know as the Second World War mm. is tied to that formation of the Nazi party? What, what's the link between the politics of 1920 mm. and eventually this huge global catastrophe that yeah. was the Second World War? Well, when we think of what are the original innovative elements of Nazi ideology, I think one of them is the glorification of violence, the explicit glorification of violence and use of violence. Um, so that it, it wasn't just that many of the members of the Nazi party, like Hitler, had been soldiers in the First World War and fought in the First World War and had the covert or explicit backing of a lot of the generals and military there. Um, and it wasn't just that they dreamed of a kind of a Germany re-establishing its grandeur and prominence in Europe, but they openly spoke of violence as a kind of regenerative force. Um, they spoke of war as a kind of 
regenerative revolutionary force that would bring together the nation, allow it to overcome the different fractures and conflicts within it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and at the same time kind of purify and, and restore it and regenerate it and bring it to new, to new heights. So they openly advocated violence and embraced violence and made violence at the core of their ideology as much as they also looked to war as actually a kind of model for how to run a society and how to run the state is to apply the methods of total war and looked back also to the camaraderie of the war. You know, in Australia, there's always this talk of kind of mateship, right, being forged in, in the fires of the First World War. Um, but that was also something for a lot of soldiers of the war, and many of them, of course, again, traumatized, but at the same time, looking back to the war as a moment in which the divisions of their country had been overcome and they had formed these real bonds that had been forged uh, forged uh, between them in that war. So look back to that as well. And that was just a mainstay of Nazi propaganda all around. So it, it almost sounds like you're saying it was in, that the war was inevitable with the, the rise of the Nazi party, uh, particularly once they seized power in the 1930s. Do you feel that the Second World War was inevitable? From that well, I, I mean, yes, I think it was inevitable. I mean, unless you thought that the rest of the Europeans were just going to lay down their arms and accept it. <laughs> no, I mean, but, but Hitler's project, war was inevitable in the sense that not that Hitler, um, not that Hitler wanted to occupy the entirety of Europe. I mean, Hitler's main concern in when he was younger, and if you read, uh, you know, Mein Kampf, he projects a lot of, you know, his ideas in 1923 backwards into his youth, but a lot of um, Mein Kampf is actually a work of history, and Hitler says there that his most influential teacher was his history teacher. Um, a lot of his concern was to unify the German nation, and in his youth, that meant unifying the German Austrian population with the Germans in, in Germany, and he and he really detested the Austro-Hungarian leadership and elites because they refused to embrace this kind of German nationalist. A vision. So that was his first and foremost, to unify the German nation and to unify the Aryan race because he brought this biological racial component to his nationalism. Um, that was kind of first and foremost and to rectify the wrongs of the First World War. And a big part of the Nazi ideology was an ideology of victimhood, that the Germans had been victims. And I think every perpetrator of genocide thinks of themselves as a victim. You know, you can't be, I mean, the, the, the basis of perpetrating mass violence and war is, is a, sen- a severe sense of victimhood. So that kind of wrecking the wrongs, unifying the German nation. And then in addition over time and understanding that the, of this Lebensraum and, and a kind of real vision actually of colonization of the East. And uh, what historians like Daniel Bloxham and others have written about in recent years is talking about the Holocaust and the Second World War as part of a colonial project. And in fact, Hitler and other Nazis wanted to apply the... Uh, the means of occupation and repression and ideologies of empire, overseas empire, to the East and actually kind of colonize the Slavs and, and, and also racially purify those areas and kind of settle them. They really thought the German settlers would go out there um, and, 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 and settle and settle Eastern Europe. So that, to that extent, that was hardcore built in. I mean, Hitler, as a youth, loved Westerns. He loved the, the, the Karl May um, uh, novels and fiction. So he had this kind of romantic idea of the frontier, which in the Karl May Westerns is, is not entirely malign when he was a youth, but that translates. So that extent, yes. And the extent to which other countries were going to stop that vision of 
of rectifying the wrongs of the First World War and unifying the German nation and bringing it back to its grandeur and colonizing the East, then yes, war was was absolutely inevitable. And I don't think the regime could be sustained without um, the successive victories that Hitler had, which allowed him to not just accrue more power abroad, everything from remilitarizing um, uh, remilitarizing the Rhineland to Anschluss, um, but then later his military victories not, they didn't just allow him to expand German power. They allowed him to consolidate power within Germany and overcome kind of different uh, other power centers within, within the German government and military um, that even after a seizure of power were there. So war, war was key. Without war, he wouldn't, his own power was, was, would, would have been drastically weakened, or at least this promise of, of militarism and expansion and nationalism. It's fascinating your comments about uh, colonization because I've, I've seen that in my research of the, um, the Japanese as well, that there was a real feeling shared by, I think, the Germans and the Japanese that there was a great hypocrisy in, in, in the world order that Britain in particular had for centuries had been out colonising far-flung corners of the world, mm. yet Germany wasn't allowed to annex its neighbour and Japan wasn't allowed to invade mm. China. And it's a, again, I, I think it plays into what you talked about with victimhood as well, that, that there was this feeling that it's almost like the, 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 the toddler banging the table and saying it's not fair, that, that the, the Japanese and the Germans equated the invasions of neighbouring countries with this historical idea of colonisation that they felt they'd missed out on. Mm. Is, is, is that a fair assessment of, 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 of the thought process that was going yeah. on? Yeah. Well, the Germans hadn't entirely missed out on colonisation because there was German Southwest Africa, um, which had been the site of the Namibian, what we call today the Namibian genocide, and in some ways a, actually a precursor to the Holocaust, um, some, some historians have argued. Um, so they, and, you know, they had territories in the Pacific and Samoa and Tanzania and so forth. Um, but yes, overall, they felt that the, the larger imperial powers like Britain and France were hypocrites. Um, I think that's a kind of mainstay in the German propaganda and thinking in the first and second, both the first and second world wars is that the Germans were honest and the Germans spoke honestly about, um, their need for empire and the need for, of Germany uh, for the economic resources and uh, of of other ter- empire, and also for their desire to promote their own kind of interests, right? Um, and whereas they saw the French and British as hiding behind these false doctrines of spreading civilization and liberty and and so forth, um, so that that was a kind of mainstay of, of German. German nationalist thinking is that Germany was actually honest about its ambitions and that the British and the French were trying to <clears throat> contain Germany uh, and German ambitions through alliances with uh, Central and Eastern European uh, countries and kind of encircle Germany. Um, Germany, which had, you know, in terms of industrial power and population, had grown immensely in the second half of the 19th century. And um, one of the reasons for the beginning of the First World War is, as undoubtedly, there were a lot of German strategists who believe that the window of opportunity for Germany to, to strike and um, at Britain, France, and Russia was closing. Um, and that, that was their moment to actually, as, you know, establish themselves as a power. But um, yeah, they, 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 they saw themselves as kind of a brutally honest <laughs> colonial power that, that wasn't always going to deal with the kind of uh, rhetorical finery that, that the British and French 
used to mask their imperial project. It reminds me that I've got uh, hanging in my office a German, it's the cover of a German magazine from the late 1930s, and the headline just says England's Fault, and the depiction is of this grotesque, pith-helmet-wearing colonial master Mm. on a raised chair being Mm. carried by the most brutally enslaved, chained, black and Asian and, you know, these obviously just to represent that yeah. what a hypocrite England is that they're saying that we can't be you know taking over countries in Europe yeah. where they've been living off the the spoils of of exploiting poor people all over the world it's it's a fascinating yeah. insight into the mindset of, of of the at least of the Nazi party at that time that that's how they viewed the world yeah i mean i think the nazis like i would say to generalize you know right wing kind of populists more generally are, you know, very good at pointing out the hypocrisies and contradictions and flaws of the existing liberal order. Um, so they speak a lot of truths when they try to talk about these hypocrisies and flaws of the existing liberal well, order. Right. It doesn't mean they're wrong just yeah. because they're coming from what, a- what, what, you know, so, I mean, I think you can see that today when there, you know, a lot of talk about the, the problems with globalization, for example, um, uh, but the, the you know then the, the, what was different was the solution to those to those problems and what they and what they proposed, which um, in the case of the Nazi Party ended up being um, you know a, a kind of renewed a renewed total war, um, and that gave complete lie to the war to end all wars. Do you think when we look back on this a century down the road from the formation of the Nazi Party? Do we look at it the right way? Do we understand what went on? Do we? Do you think the average person in general has a fair understanding of the the, the motivations, the, the what was driving Germany, and the um, just the just the landscape that led to the rise of the Nazi Party? Unfortunately, no. I'm, a lot of this blame lies at the feet of uh, people who make documentaries about. Nazi Germany and the Second World War, of which there are so many, I don't think <laughs> anyone could compile an index. Uh, the History Channel is commonly referred to as the, the, no, the Hitler no, I, Channel. I yeah. participated in a History Channel documentary on the Second World War, so I shouldn't um, badmouth all of them. Um, but the problem is that these documentarians rely on the propaganda footage of the Nazis themselves. So what we get is the triumph of the will version of Nazism. So we see the Nazis through the eyes of, of their propagandists, which means we imagine the Nazis to be, you know, these serried troops of absolutely disciplined stormtroopers. I did talk about the discipline, but that was show, right? Um, and oftentimes what the documentarians do is they add kind of even more effects to the, to the Nazi party propaganda. And you see slow motion videos of Hitler, you know, ascending up the steps in the Nuremberg rally with all the various uh, ranks of his followers perfectly arrayed around him. And he's portrayed as a kind of evil God almost as opposed to an actual human being. So we get, um, we get that image. I mean, the Nazis lost the war, but they actually won the battle for, for how they would be portrayed uh, in terms of the memory of the Nazi period. So I do think it's really important to get beyond that and also really important to engage critically with this idea of totalitarianism, that Nazi Germany was a totalitarian state. Undoubtedly, part of the ideology of Nazi Germany was totalitarian. As I've said, application of total war to society, right? The the total control and mobilization of society. That was part of the ideology. 
and part of the vision they wanted to give to the outside world. But in reality, it was, it was much more complicated. So you have you know, historians who have looked at the social history of Germany and popular responses to Nazism. There is a whole gamut of responses to Nazism. Uh, and in fact, fanatical devotion to Nazism uh, is, is very much a minority response during the Nazi period. The, the scale ranges from outright resistance, which after the beginning uh, in early 1933, really, I mean, there's very not very much actually outright resistance um, to kind of outright resistance to people who never believed in the Nazi ideology and continued to subscribe to other um, ideas, even conservatives who may have not been favorable to the Weimar Republic, but did not agree with the kind of breakdown of the rule of law and violent methods of the Nazis. Um, and you had a lot of indifference actually as well. And a lot of people who refused to participate in Nazi rallies and refused to give money to, you know, the Nazi youth hostel when the, um, when the Nazi youth knocked on their door or didn't go out, you know, right. So, so the spectrum of, of responses was great. Ian Kershaw, uh, has written a really memorable line, which is that the road to Auschwitz was paved with indifference. Um, this has been contested by other historians who, you know, Daniel Goldhagen, Goldhagen, who said ordinary Germans were possessed of eliminationist anti-Semitism, that they were all consumed with genocidal anti-Semitism since the late 19th century. But the fact is there was this wide spectrum of responses. The youth, obviously the people growing up in the Nazi period were more impacted by Nazi propaganda uh, than others. But there wasn't this absolute control of Nazi society. There was not a 1984 kind of vision. And in fact, if you didn't belong to certain kind of undesirable groups, which ran the spectrum from communists uh, and socialists to homosexuals and Jehovah's Witness and people labeled as asocial and unde- you know, various undesirables, um, you were actually not terribly threatened by the Nazi system. Even during the Second World War, especially during the Second World War, Hitler was obsessed with keeping the German people happy and avoiding a repeat of the First World War in which um, the Allies managed to starve the Germans into submission and resulting in uprisings and revolutions. So Hitler was extremely concerned about actually not um, being too repressive in Germany itself um, and, and making sure that the Germans were well fed and well taken care of. So it's a different situation than you see, for example, under Stalinism, you know, with, with the kind of almost random acts of terror and quotas and so forth, you know, and a sixth of the population ending up in the gulags. It, it's, it's not like that, right? And, um, and the Nazis themselves were not, um, were not the disciplined ranks of stormtroopers, most of them. That's the image they wanted to project. That's how they got youth to join their movements. That's how they got middle-class people anxious about their economic well-being, uh, to look at them and say, well, here's a disciplined, orderly movement that's going to really bring order to Germany. That was the propaganda. In fact, um, you know, as I, you know, Germans did rely in large part on kind of corrupt patron-client networks that already had been established across Germany with local, local bosses who only were recent converts to Nazism. There was a huge amount of corruption. Um, probably most, not, most Germans certainly did not subscribe to the radical anti-Semitism of Hitler uh, they did not join most of them in the boycott of Jewish businesses at the beginning of Hitler's seizure of power. Uh, if you look at the attendance of movies, because cinema was incredibly important to Joseph Goebbels, and uh, behind the scenes, Joseph Goebbels and the Nazis uh, really micromanaged a lot of the popular culture and film of the time. But what were the popular films? Well, The Eternal Jew, which was a propaganda film, radically genocidally anti-Semitic, 
propaganda film that was a supposed documentary of a Polish ghetto made at the beginning of the Second World War. That's often found in documentaries about Nazi anti-Semitism, often shown in the classrooms. Extremely unpopular. Almost nobody went to see it. It was way too overtly propagandistic and anti-Semitic. What did they go see? There was the most effective anti-Semitic movie was The Jew Zeus, was a, was a very dramatic, extremely well-made film using Hollywood techniques about um, a Jew who manages to seize uh, power um, in, I believe it was a 19th, 18th century uh, it takes place in the 19th or 18th century, um, and he manages to kind of seize power and enact a reign of terror. But it was it, Goebbels explicitly banned any anti-Semitic slogans in the advertising of that film. And um, I call it kind of the German Game of Thrones because it uses kind of sex and violence and sadism to kind of, you know, in all these lurid kind of um, scenes, uh, in, including a scene of eventually the Jew attempting to rape a Aryan German woman at the same time as her fiance is being tortured, right? But it, it channels all these repressed feelings of kind of, of sexual feelings and feelings of violence and repression and projects the Nazi, the reality of Nazism, which it was an authoritarian seizure and power and highly repressive and violent onto the Jew, but does so actually through a really kind of well-made movie. Uh, in fact, after the movie, the actor who played um, the Jewish villain, uh, the actor was Ferdinand Marion, got... Um, dozens if hundreds of love letters from German women. So Goebbels knew how to use sex. He knew how to use violence to kind of channel, and that was much more effective. Goebbels hated triumph of the will. He thought it was not an effective tool of propaganda, that it was only going to convince the party faithful. Uh, He had this idea of the orchestra principle, that every single movie had to be one instrument in orchestra, just play one subtle tune of German propaganda. So that's why I think people don't have... Um, always an accurate picture because they are beholden to these kind of images of Nazi rallies and so forth. Um, they don't actually, you know, um, depict the real complex reality. Well, Marco, it's a, it's an absolutely fascinating topic. Uh, tell us tell us more about your work. Tell us about your book and uh, and, and the other work you're doing because it's uh, fascinating topics seem to go hand in hand with the uh, the work that you're doing. Yeah, so a lot of my work has been on the aftermath of the fascist period and of the genocide and total war uh, that characterized, uh, you know, the 30-year period from 1914 to 1945. Um, And it's about the response in terms of the creation of new uh, international organizations after the war, uh, like uh, the United Nations, and then eventually the kind of the European Union, uh, and also the creation of uh, new human rights ideas and new human rights norms and courts and so forth. So a kind of response after the, the Second World War to Nazism and fascism and an attempt to ensure that this time never again for real <laughs> um, would would you have these kind of genocidal ideologies and the breakdown of, of, of democratic practices and human rights? But my contribution to that debate is to show how conservatives played a really important role uh, in the creation of new ideas of human rights and new ways of protecting human rights. That in fact, the birth of human rights after the Second World War was not just a kind of outcome of traditional progressive movements, um, whether it was the revolutions uh, of the late 18th and 19th century or uh, the kind of various progressive social movements of the time. And it wasn't just a direct inevitable outcome of the Holocaust or the war, um, but in fact, a lot of people who were 
on the right of the political spectrum found conservatism in crisis after the Second World War, in part because it was associated with fascism, associated with collaboration, associated with appeasement. So conservatives found themselves looking for a new language to kind of give force to their movement and something beyond just kind of anti-communism. In fact, the Soviet Union was actually um, quite popular in the West in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And so they came to this new language of of human rights and and envisioning the defense of the individual as what should reign supreme. But in their mind, uh, the defense of the individual was also a safeguard and a bulwark against socialism as well. So the interpretation the conservatives gave to the rise of Nazism was that Nazism had arisen because of the increasing power of the state. That in the First World War, you had this immensely powerful state organizing and mobilizing societies in the economy. And this had not been done away with after the First World War. And, and the, the growing powers of the state eroded freedom and democracy uh, and eventually paved the way for a totalitarian movement like the Nazis. Um, and that, in fact, the solution was not socialism, which would just be further strengthening the powers of the state and cre- further create the potential for totalitarianism, but, in fact, a protection of individual freedoms Uh, and a a move away from collectivism and enshrining that at the international level in a way that had never really been done uh, before. Um, And so part of my work is about, in a way, competing narratives of the origins of Nazism, right? I I just told you the conservative narrative. The socialist narrative was, after the Second World War, was that Nazism arose because of a crisis of capitalism and because of... uh, unemployment and uh, deteriorating economic conditions. And in fact, the way to prevent fascism from arising again was to look after the welfare of people and ensure that social justice would be safeguarded. Um, so yeah, that's part of my, part of my work is, is understanding that there were, that human rights was, was, was both a project of the left and right, but they had very different visions. One on the left of kind of economic and social rights and the right to health care and social security, um, which had been actually at the forefront of the war aims of the Allies um, at the end of the Second World War. Uh, and another, a conservative vision of the defense of individual freedoms uh, from collectivism and from the state. And so that's why I think we shouldn't conflate fascism and conservatism there is overlap between the two, and certainly a lot of Nazi ideology draws directly on kind of a traditional conservative ideas about the family and a return to the land and, and so on. But um, there's this kind of libertarian strand of conservatism that played a really important role in kind of uh, regenerating Europe after the Second World War. Um, what's your book called? If people oh, yeah. So that book is The Conservative Human Rights uh, Revolution, and I'm now working on a project on the origins of Euroscepticism. Uh, in, uh, in Britain and uh, France and Italy to try to understand the, the origins of the present, present crisis and also contemporary uh, populism, including right-wing populism as well. Well, it certainly is timely it's, uh, and something I uh, would enjoy talking to you on a, on a future podcast about. Uh, but uh, Marco Durandi, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, it's been great. Thanks. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.